Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and your first wager is risk-free up to $1,000. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. 21 years of age or older to wager. Virginia only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-888-532-3500. everyone welcome back to the direct-to-video connoisseur as always it's matt here and um, i'm joined by a very special guest this week uh, i think this is your your third appearance on the podcast we have uh, will from exploding helicopter hello matt yes uh, i think it's my third time here great to be back excellent yeah and, and um yeah because one of the things i realized when i was thinking about it i was like what were the, the other two movies you did and in my head when, when you did red scorpion for the first time that you were on here and in my head i thought i did that one on your podcast and i forgot that no i did codename <laughs> wild geese for the first time i was on your podcast yes we were kind of crossing the streams when we did uh, red scorpion because that's uh, obviously a, a film with uh, a lot of helicopter action in and an exploding helicopter which is obviously my uh, primary interest in film so yeah we were kind of crossing the streams on that one because uh, you're a big dolph fan i'm a big exploding helicopter fan so yeah we were uh, mixing our interests together with that one yes yeah and i guess also too unexpectedly i ended up getting out some uh, some uh, ill feelings towards M.M. at Walsh in that podcast. That I, I wasn't playing. It was sort of exercising some demons that I wasn't expecting to exercise on that podcast. He, I don't know. For most people, he's a national treasure, but uh, yeah, he seems to occupy a different uh, place in your psyche. Yeah, at least in that movie. For some reason, I, I was saying I was on um, John Cross's uh, After Movie Diner podcast when we watched Critters, which um, there's a scene in that one where um, M.M. at Walsh is thrown by one of the aliens through uh, a, a plate window out onto like the the ground uh, in front of the house that he's in and i was saying how that there was a little catharsis for me and seeing that which i don't know yeah that, there's no reason for me to not like mm at walsh you're right he is a national treasure i think uh <laughs> roger ebert had a, an mm at walsh D, was it harry dean stanton rule is that what it was that like there's no movie that could be made that has one of those two in it that that can you know if, if a movie has one of those two in it it can't be bad and i think um it wasn't until wild wild west with uh, will smith came out that that rule was ever broken <laughs> For him. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like there's some other demons that you need to uh, to, to exercise as well there. <laughs> exactly, for sure. Well, it is, it is uh, as we're, we're talking here, we're one week into 2022 at this point, which uh, that means we're here. This is the, the future. Um, I believe George <laughs> Jetson is born this year in 2022. And then um, as I was bringing up this subject to you, Will, you, you mentioned some movies that take place in 2022 that I had completely uh, forgotten about that uh, um, mm. so uh, yeah, I think the first one was was No Escape with that uh, Ray Liotta. Yes, 
Yeah, great um, sort of prisoners on dumped on a remote island uh, flick with, uh, with as you mentioned, Ray Liotta, uh, directed by Martin Campbell, did a couple of Bond movies. And yes, yeah, got a f- fantastic cast of um, character actors in, in that film. And uh, yeah, set in the year 2022, one I desperately need to revisit, actually. Uh, but there's, there's some other, other interesting films set in the year 2022 as well. So uh, I think the first Purge movie, Purge movie is meant to be set uh, in, uh this year and uh soylent green as well uh rather troublingly uh, as we you know look at uh, our future where we are uh you know looking at climate change and uh the kind of uh, overheated world that we see in that film yeah troublingly soylent green is, is set in 2022 so hopefully uh hopefully that film doesn't turn out to be too prophetic yeah, it's interesting when you think of all the movies, right, that have come out, that came out, that, that were set in 2022 and sort of what the, the messages were. Like, you know, No no Escape, I think, you know, in the mid-90s, you know, the whole, um, you know, we th- there was a crime epidemic that we didn't necessarily realize was not as much of an epidemic as we thought, in, at least in the United States, where it was like, um, you know, oh, crack and everybody's killing each other and all this stuff and so horrible. And there's this idea, I guess, that as the future went on, this crime was only going to get worse and they had to come up with new uh new ways of dealing with crime. And so it, you know, it, it, um, yeah, I guess they felt like penal colonies that, you know, that that was where we were headed eventually. And, um, yeah. And then, um, the the purge, I guess is kind of a different mindset of it that like, you know, like dealing with crime, right. You're just always going to have it. So just give everybody a night to just, you know, be horrible. Um, and so, yeah, kind of a different, a shift in the mindset of crime, um, over time. And then, yeah, Soylent Green, like you said, that's, I, I, the funny thing is I completely forgot that one was set in 22. And when you go to the poster, the, the very first thing it says is in the year 2022. <laughs> well, you can't remember uh, all of these details, Matt. So I, I wouldn't beat yourself uh, up too much about uh, failing to remember that. Yes. Yeah. And I think the, the one thing I think that, I, I don't know about you, but I think the one thing we, we thought we were going to get by now would be <laughs> flying cars. That was the one that like, <laughs> Um, I remember in the 90s, or maybe even the late 80s, there was a, a battery commercial, and they were showing how if you put this battery in your garage door opener, that, you know, it would last for however many years. And, it, you know, the, what they did is the door would open, and it would show a different year, and it would be a different car. And so when it opened for the year 2000, a flying car came out. And uh, my mom's like, I remember my mom saying, oh, look at that, you know, Matthew, you're going to be 21 in in the year 2000. Um, and so, you know, wow, yeah, that's, that, that seems like this far away thing that I'm going to be 21, you know, I'm going to be an adult and, and all of these things. And, you know, now I'm 42. So um, <laughs> it's like, you know, <laughs> one, we have no flying cars and two, 21 seems like a long time ago. Yeah, it's, it's, it certainly does. But, you know, I, I can't get too excited by the prospect. I mean, I don't even drive a car, so uh, I can't get I, I can't get too excited by the prospect of flying cars. I wouldn't be allowed to get in one and drive one anyway. Right. I, I don't drive either. My wife and I don't drive either, which I think it's, it's rarer in the United States. It's it's not so rare for my wife because she grew up in the city of Philadelphia here. But for me, uh, growing up in the state of Maine, where there really wasn't much public transportation, I, I had a lot of uh, uni- I, I kind of had a way of living in places where I didn't need one so much. But um, but yeah, I don't have one either. Um, I do have a theory for why we never got flying cars, though, and that's because um, <laughs> Um, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, kind of one of the foremost uh, technology institutes in, in the world, uh, it's based in Massachusetts, um, based um, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, near Boston. Um, and anybody who, who uh, it, uh, most people don't realize this, but Massachusetts probably has the worst drivers in the world. Um, they, uh, <laughs> it, it, 
like, you know, think about MIT, Harvard's in Boston. I mean, there are a lot of really great educational institutions, but for whatever reason, like, for example, I think um, their driving schools don't teach um, drivers how to use their turn signals. Um, there's, uh, you know, they, they, it's just, it's, it's a mess there. And my theory is, is that MIT discovered the technology for, for flying cars and they buried it because they didn't want people in Massachusetts to have flying cars because they knew the disaster that it would have brought on the world. So, um, so I think we may have dodged one there with the no flying cars. Well, I will, uh, I will uh, defer to your uh, better judgment on this topic. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, why don't we, we'll kind of dig into the, to our podcast episode here. And um, the interesting thing that the, the movie we're going to talk about here, um, no retreat, no surrender. Um, so very much the opposite of, um, you know, sir, uh, Falstaff's, uh, you know, discretion is the better part of valor. There's no, uh, this is kind of the opposite of that that phrase. Um, but um, th I believe this might be one of the first times I've talked about Jean-Claude Van Damme on this podcast. Um, I know I did a kind of a solo one when I was coming back from hiatus where I talked about the movie Blackwater that he did with Dolph. But I don't, I'm trying to think if I've ever done an actual podcast episode where it was like, you know, Van Damme movie was the, the thing. And, you know, we had a guest on and we chatted about Van Damme. So this is uh, some, some new territory perhaps on the podcast here. Yeah, happy to, uh, you know, dig the shovel into uh, that territory with you. Yeah, so, I mean, what what are your kind of overall thoughts on Van Damme as, as one of the premier action stars? Uh, it, yeah, it, you know. yeah, well, I, I'm actually a big um, Van Damme star. And of, of those kind of, uh, you know, that era of action actors like uh, Dolph or Sylvester Stallone or Steven Seagal, I've actually seen more Jean-Claude Van Damme films than, than any of those other uh, actors. And... Um, he's somebody who's actually um, really sort of grown in my affections over that time, because um, I think, you know, when I first started watching these sorts of films, you know, back in the back in the 80s and the 90s, I, I, I think uh, I really felt that, you know, Van Damme was sort of in the second tier to, you know, behind people like uh, Arnie and, and Sly. But um, over the over the years, I've 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 really sort of, uh, you know, grown a really warm affection towards uh, Van Damme. And I think um, he, he, in particular, it, it's, uh, I think the latter, how he's handled the the sort of later part of his career, I think is, is really admirable. Um, and on one of your recent shows, you know, you were talking, um, you know, about uh, Bruce Willis and, uh, you know, and we all know the types of terrible films that he has just been, the kind of junk that he's just been pushing out into the world over the last pretty much 10 years um you know Steven Seagal he just you know very visibly just doesn't care whereas Van Damme actually um I I think of all of the films he's navigated this latter part of his career in, in a much more interesting way and sure some of the films that he makes you might not like them but there there, there often very seems to be interesting things going on with them so you know things like we Die Young, which is a film that came out a couple of years ago. I didn't terribly like it, but it was a really interesting film. And you could see that why Van Damme had tried to do it, because it was a little bit different. He's trying to sort of, I don't know, flex some flex some different muscles that uh, that he normally does in the, these types of action films. And he's actually somebody who has noticeably grown so much. I think of all of those actors that I sort of mentioned previously, I think Van Damme is the one who has most noticeably improved as an actor um, over that time. So I just kind of, um, I really enjoy his films, but I also really respect um, how he has gone about his, you know, career over the decades. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you on that. Because I think, I think the most interesting thing about him 
Now, I, I think, you know, there's some movies like, um, um, oh, now I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the, on the name of the title. It's the one where he, um, he uh, was, had his kidney stolen. And, um, Pound of Flesh. Pound of Flesh, yeah. Where in that one, I think he's playing somebody younger than himself. I think he's playing someone who's born in like the early 70s as opposed to uh, somebody born in the early 60s. But for the most part, he doesn't do that, which I think is mm. really good in that, I mean, you know, there's JCVD, of course. I think that's kind of the big one for him where it's like, he kind of comes to reckon with, you know, aging. And at that point, he's only, you know, not even 50 at that point when he did JCVD. And I remember there's a scene in that where he says, I can't do these big one shot scenes anymore. I'm almost 50 years old. Um, and so he's, you know, he was really kind of reckoning with, 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 with who he was. And I don't know that any of the other stars that you mentioned could have done a JCVD the way he did it. Yeah, I would, I would agree with you. I, mean, I, I, I don't, I don't, I think, he I think some of those other actors, unfortunately, I think their egos are frankly too big. Um, I, you know, I just think it would be impossible for, for sort of Bruce Willis to to show that level of, of, of self of self-awareness. Um, you know, I, I, and I think um, I think Sly does has shown some, you know, on occasions that he is he is. Um, willing to, you know, reckon with his advancing years, you know, things like um, Copland, but, um, you know, but then he does something like that and, you know, he takes a few sort of bits of criticism for it and then, you know, he's back into, you know, um, sort of, you know, he's back rebooting, you know, the Rambo franchise um, in, you know, differing shades of ridiculousness uh yeah that's a whole nother conversation in itself but yeah i i think this i don't quite know what it is about van damme's personality that that allows him to sort of show that level of vulnerability i guess it is or you know to show his show his flaws it's uh yeah it's, it's interesting that he he alone amongst his peers has, has kind of been prepared to you know show that level of vulnerability yeah, and it's interesting, too, because the movie we're going to talk about, you know, it's um, No Retreat, No Surrender. I mean, it's, it's his first film. And one of the things I think we, you know, um, one of the things that was really great is you um, you pointed me out to a, an article that was um, uh, that kind of did like an oral history of, of this film. And there was a sense from the people talking about it that he had a huge ego, that he was ready to, to kind of go. And I think for uh, so many of these guys, it's like you have that huge ego and then – the idea of transitioning to something else, uh, you know, a different kind of movie, a different kind of starring film, it, it's a difficult thing. And but but for some reason for him, and I, mean, I don't know, I'm trying to think if there are theories about. It. I mean, one um, I think that's interesting about him thinking about JCVD, but then also another film that you'd mentioned uh, before we did the podcast, The Bouncer. Um, mm. It almost maybe the fact that maybe because he's from Belgium, maybe there's a certain European sensibility towards aging that he has that maybe not, not all of the other actors have because because <laughs> he's doing these movies that are, that, you know, JCVD and the, and the Bouncer are both, you know, European films that, that don't kind of have the same feel of, of what a normal mm. action film would. Oh, yeah, completely. And, um, uh, you know, we were we were sort of batting around, you know, whereas we were sort of discussing doing this show together we were batting around a couple a couple of films and and the bouncer was one that that I, that I put forward because it's it's a film that I'm I'm really keen on and yeah it does have um that sort of european um flavor i mean it's a much more um for people who haven't seen it i'd really recommend it it's um it, it's it's a, it's a really good uh, little like B movie. Um, you know, I think what makes it interesting, it's 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 quite a character-driven story, much more than you kind of get typically in, say, you know, typically that you would get from a Van Damme film. Um, 
you know, and there's a there's a really nice relationship within this film um, between uh, Van Damme's character, who is this sort of aging former bodyguard who is sort of living a little bit under the radar because he did some sort of shady stuff in the past. And, um, you know, he's trying to sort of make sure that that doesn't sort of uh, come back to, to wash up on him. Uh, and there's a really nice relationship he has with his daughter. He's sort of single parent. It's just all sort of handled with, you know, with simplicity uh, and with some uh, restraint. But um, it's also got some really great action in there. There's a fantastic uh, uh, long one shot scene where um, Van Damme has to go and uh, kidnap this uh, this drug dealer character within within the film. And as we were talking about, again, this is a film where um, the passing of years is acknowledged within the film for, for Van Damme's character. There's this, you know, in order to get this bouncer uh, gig that, that he's working at this sort of very low rent strip club, the, the kind of the owner. Uh, just sort of dumps all of the prospective candidates into the basement and just sort of says, OK, the last one of you standing, um, you know, gets the job. And, you know, we can see, you know, within that fight, you can see, you know, Van Damme's, you know, he's kind of struggling to keep going and he kind of gets down to the last two fighters and they both they both have to sort of pause for it, give themselves 30 seconds before they then start taking each other on because they're both like shattered. And um, uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's a really it's a really good little film. And um uh one that i would again sort of shows van damme's ability to kind of move with the times but also to actually deliver a dramatic performance um and it's yeah a very well shot film and yeah it just is a, a great little uh sort of b-movie um action flick yeah and i don't know um i don't know in in in, in england if you have uh, imdb tv but um here in the states it's it's, it's available on a few different free streaming uh, platforms here um I, uh, IMDb TV, uh, Tubi, um, Pluto. So yeah, I think for, for a lot of people out there, I, I, I think, you know, there are, you know, I think it's subtitled for a, a good portion mm -hmm. of it. And I know that's something that people sometimes have trouble with, but I think it's, it's, for, you know, for, for people that, that have trouble with that, um, but you're into action movies, and you're into Van Damme movies, I think you should sort of lay that to the side because this, it, it, it's worth it. Yeah. And it's got that, um, it does have a bit of a, it does have a downbeat ending, which kind of I think you you could say fits more into sort of perhaps European tradition of filmmaking rather than a sort of more commercial Hollywood type of filmmaking and I think um, you know some people may have again have a bit of a, a problem with that but you know if you're open-minded enough to 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 watch uh, some subtitles you're open-minded enough to watch a film where um, you know it doesn't all end perfectly for for everyone there isn't a nice sort of happy clappy ending then it's it's a it's a film that would um, you know really reward uh, your time it's sometimes known as Lucas so if you're having trouble tracking it down as the bouncer you might just need to uh, to search for it as uh, Lucas all right. Excellent. Excellent. Well, yeah, I think that's a really good, I think it's a, maybe a good way to, for me, for us to segue into the, 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 the film, the kind of the meat of the film that we're, we're discussing here, No Retreat, No Surrender, which is, I, I mean, yes, if you go through his IMDb bio, it's not his first credit on there. I mean, we know like he, he was in Breakin. Um, I didn't realize he was also a, an uncredited soldier missing in action. Um, so mm. yeah, I guess. I don't does. know if that's a dodgy, I don't know if that's a bit of dodgy IMDb. Could but, be. Um, uh, yeah, I, I have seen that, but I've certainly yeah. not seen him in that film. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's interesting. Yeah, like you talk about that sort of the, the 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 kind of the way IMDb sort of crowdsources. I think we I think we discussed this before that like um 
Don the Dragon Wilson has yes. a whole like bunch of films <laughs> as just Don Wilson that um we don't know uh, how many of those he was actually in or not because it's they they kind of appear and disappear from his bio from time to time. <laughs> I, I I I don't know. I I I'm slightly frustrated on one level, but on another level, I'm quite I'm quite pleased that sort of, you know, that that sort of 80s era of uh, video films, you know, made made in the Philippines or Thailand or whatever. There there are there are vagaries about even now today as to who exactly is in them and who who isn't. So I I, I kind of one level I'm frustrated, and the other I like this air of mystery as to you know was was. Was Don the Dragon Wilson really in The Last American Soldier or not? Who knows? <laughs> right, right. It does. It adds a certain level of charm to these kinds of movies that uh, <laughs> I think we, you know, we sometimes, you know, like it, it kind of, it kind of part of why we, we enjoy these kinds of movies, I think. Like it almost like it, it has to be this way for us to enjoy them. Exactly, because they, they they haven't been 4D, uh, you know, they haven't been given a, a 4D, you know, 4K restoration or anything. So, you know, you're just you're just sat there looking at the screen, a very fuzzy, grainy picture, you know, that's jumping around because the tracking isn't quite perfect trying to work out. Oh, is that is that Don Wilson or not? Like in the background there. Exactly. Yeah, I did that for um, what was it? Strike Commandos, I think, is the movie that um that he was supposed to be. It, it's not the not the um the Red Brown one, but it's like a different one. I, I I think that was the one where I was like, is that him flying a helicopter? Um, and so and I think that was also one of the ones that was like removed and brought back or something like that too. So um, yeah, it's it like you say because it it you know I think for for you um you know. It, it affects, you know, how many films he's been in with an exploding helicopter. Um, and I know for me, it's because, you know, you know, you review a movie because I wanted to review another Don the Dragon Wilson movie and add to his uh, his tag list up there. And um, then it's like, oh, well, why am, why else am I watching this movie if, it's not, you know, if it doesn't have Don the Dragon Wilson in it for a split second? Exactly. These 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 are you know at the end of the day, these are really important um, sort of uh, distinctions we're trying to sort of make here as to what films are in somebody's filmography and which ones aren't exactly exactly well well we know for a fact that that van damme <laughs> is in no retreat no surrender um because he it, it, for me he kind of makes the movie um and i i thought we'll kind of maybe we'll kind of just dig in and maybe we'll kind of go over some some key points or some highlights and uh and like i like i was saying beforehand will if, if as i go through things if i skip something and you want to head back of course we we definitely can um I, you know i think this is one i think you had mentioned um the, the film on Twitter recently, and it got a bit of it got a bit of a buzz, and I think this is kind of a favorite amongst our kind of um, B movie set um, it, it here and on Twitter and, and wherever. Yeah, it definitely seems to be one where which has a there's a there's a real sort of like warmth um, towards it amongst the uh, sort of action film uh, community here. Because yeah, I, I put out a, a message saying, oh yeah, now watching this film, and uh, yeah, I got a lot of um sort of res responses and, and replies back to that and um you know for whatever reason i only actually saw this film for the first time um last month i, I you know i don't know quite i mean you can't watch everything immediately so i just you know it's just one that had kind of slipped through the cracks and i was trying to fill in a few holes on uh, uh van damme's cv so i thought right I can, I can see it's available to stream right i'm gonna i'm gonna do this one and uh yeah i i, I having watched it for the first time i can well i can completely see why this film is held in such um you know uh, popular affection by so many so many people it is a it is an incredibly um likable film it is a very endearing film and yeah i can see why today it still has um you know for all its flaws and i'm sure we're going to get into them i can see still see why it is such a popular fan favorite for so many people 
Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things for me in watching this now, um, you know, because I watched it that last night, and actually, I watched the uh, the Riff Tracks version of it that was on uh, the IMDb show. So I got the um, uh, the guys who used to work on MST3K uh, riffing the film um, and making jokes about certain aspects of it, which um, it's always interesting to see that version, because sometimes there are things in the movie that I don't even think about as being bad that they make fun <laughs> of. And I'm like, yeah, that's right. Why did that happen? Um so uh, it's very, you know, kind of a very interesting way to look at it. But um, yeah, why don't we kind of dive in? Um, you know, so the, the film starts in Sherman Oaks, California, which um, I don't know if you've ever been to the L.A. area before. I have not. Yeah. So I actually found out that I, I, I was looking up where Sherman Oaks is on the map. I had a rough idea of where it was, and I found out that I actually I was near Sherman Oaks, which is, you know, it's part of L.A. Um, near there is uh, Studio City, which is where CBS has its lot. And my friend and I, when we went to... Uh, Hollywood and LA in the early 2000s, we, uh, somebody on the street was handing out free tickets to be in the Craig Kilborn show. Um, so it's a top, you know, late night talk show after da David Letterman. And, um, so we were in studio city. So we were right near where, um, you know, this film, the early part of this film takes place. And to some extent, the whole film takes place there. It's just, they don't tell us that they, they tell us <laughs> that we're in Seattle, but, um, but either way, um, and there we are in Sherman Oaks and, um, we're seeing a karate dojo. And um, interesting thing happens. Um, uh, a, a guy, a, an emissary from a, a, a organized crime boss, comes in <laughs> saying, "We're going to take over your dojo because we want to use this as a front for laundering money." I guess is what the deal is. They want to use mm. uh, dojos across the country as fronts for laundering money. Um, so, you know, um, we have our, our hero <laughs> Kurt and his dad. Who um, his dad is uh, Timothy Baker, who I think we've seen a few kind of um, karate films. Um, yeah, the dad uh, get, gets um, taken down a peg by Van Damme. Van Damme's one of the the the, the heavies of um, this mm. this emissary, um, and he he beats up the dad and breaks his leg. And and the dis the dad decides at this point that discretion is the better part of valor. He does not follow the edict of no retreat, no surrender. We haven't been introduced to this concept of no retreat, <laughs> no surrender yet. So in his mind, discretion is the better part of valor, and he moves his family to Seattle. Um, but yeah, I, well, what did you think of this early part where we kind of get our first glimpse of Van Damme, but also this idea that a, a, a organized crime syndicate would do this? Well, yes, I mean, it is quite a mind-boggling bo mind idea. I mean, I, you, you would have thought that uh, organized crime would be, uh, you know, interested in using um, businesses which where there'd be more, I don't know, more of a through flow of cash um, through, you know, than uh, than uh, some dojos where you, you kind of think, you know, you can't be, you can't be laundering too much money through, uh, through those types of, uh, th through those types of organizations. But, um, you know, I, I think th th that kind of idea just, it just sets up, um, I think it kind of orientates you as a viewer as to quite where this film is pitched because that's a, that's a ridiculous idea and we're going to be exposed to many further ridiculous ideas throughout the uh, throughout the rest of this film but yeah it's uh it's it's kind of um uh yeah sets up a, a couple of um uh you know important points in this film that, uh, because as you're mentioning the sort of the dad has this notion that you know karate is for defense purposes only it's not for it's not for not for aggression and um that's uh a theme that kind of follows through the film, although I would, I, I think it's, it's a bit fluffed, frankly, but, uh, but there you go. But yeah, we get to see a, a couple of these, uh, 
uh, of these kind of uh, mobsters in here and uh, we we start to see some of the the things that crop up again and again in this film where basically no characterization in this film is is too crude so the the kind of uh, the mobsters one of the mobsters uh, the head mobster and van damme both have these uh, you know slicked back hair which which obviously in the 80s was an emblem of uh, corporate evil uh so yeah we we i mean we get our first sort of taste of a uh, bit of uh, martial arts action uh, in in this in this uh, opening scene as well yeah and i think for me the one thing that stands out in this scene is that van damme is kind of a larger than life figure like he it's almost like a, a like a halo kind of is over his head when he's in the scene like it, it it's really evident right there i think um obviously i saw this well after he'd become a star but it's kind of evident when i'm watching this that like this guy is headed somewhere out of everybody in this film yeah i mean he he certainly is that set up in that way not uh, i mean he's he's got an on-screen credit at the start of the film you know and jean-claude van damme um you know there's also the way he's dressed he's he's wearing a sort of flamboyant white suit with a sort of red tie so just you know he's he's visually made to stand out from the uh, apart from the other from i think there's three of the these hoods that come into this dojo at the beginning of the film so there's this there's clearly uh you know and he's given the, the key the key you know when the the you know when the uh jason's dad you know fights fights back against the mobsters it's then you know and, and i think beats one of them then falls to van damme to come in and, and settle matters because he's you know so he's, he's positioned as the the kind of the, like the elite muscle within this uh this mob organization so yeah i mean i think there there definitely is this idea being set up within the film um you know that that Van Damme is is you know not just as a character he's he's you know not setting up him as a character but also you know setting it's also you know they've they've clearly feel there's something about him otherwise they wouldn't give a role like that to to him and at this point in his career he he'd done pretty much next to nothing a couple of bit of extras work so this is really the sort of his first pro part proper in, in any movie yeah and then of course you know buckle up because you know, i would say buckle up but i, I, I don't know what the, the expression is but you, you, be prepared because you're not going to see him again until the end like this is <laughs> you, you get a taste of van damme here and then that's it there's no more van damme um until the very end of the film um and i think that is one of the things for me that um is is really interesting like because this was supposed to be a response to karate kid from that um that the article that you you sent me um mm. that uh that, that, that Corey Yuen um, and, um, and company, they wanted to create a sort of a, a, a Chinese-based response to, uh, uh, Karate, to Karate Kid. Kid. And one of the things that made Karate Kid great was that you you have this constant building of William Zabka and Martin Cove as baddies uh, kind of throughout the film. And um, this is just sort of like, nope, they're, they're gone. Um, that's it. You know, again, the, the dad decides he's moving to Seattle, which we discover um, as they pack up the car and they drive off in their um, wood paneled Ford LTD wagon. Um, and they, when they drive off that Seattle looks suspiciously like Sherman Oaks still. Um, it's 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 told to us that this is Seattle, but excuse me, it looks a lot like uh, like Sherman Oaks, which was uh, interesting. I, I don't know if that's something um, if you've never been to these areas, if, the, if you pick that up right away, did it seem like, OK, this does not what, what I would expect Seattle to be. I, I have to say, I didn't pick that up. I, I don't. My my eye is not as attuned to the kind of uh, sort of regional variations that uh, that uh, that you sort of get in. Uh, that I might sort of, if I was watching something British, I might pick up uh, when I'm watching films here. But yeah, not that's that's not a particular uh, aspect I picked up on. 
but in- interesting to know they were they were cheating the uh, cheating the viewer there. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing, right? Because when you when you write like a you know you write a novel or a play or or, um, or anything like that, it's like you can set the film wherever you want, and you don't really need to be there, and you can just sort of you know guess on on particulars, and even not even have to get everything right. Um, but when you make a movie, it's like okay, um, I, I think they did do some shooting in Seattle, um, mostly to get um, that the tombstone of, of mm. Bruce Lee. Um, but yeah, I, I, it, for the most part, the film was shot there and there's certain scenes like, um, there's one where, um, the, the overweight bully guy is chasing, um, uh, the, the friend RJ and you can see like the street sign that, that tells you what yeah. street you're on is definitely in LA. Um, you know, the, the way that that sign looks is definitely something like my, my wife likes a lot of old, um, detective films from like the seventies. And a lot of those take place in L.A. And so it's the exact, you know, like the areas and everything look just like what you yeah. see in those those uh, those movies or those TV shows. Yeah, there's, a, there's actually something you mentioned that I wanted to, to just um, I thought it might be useful to just uh, sort of pick up on because, you know, you, you you spoke about the production of this of this movie and the fact that the producers of it, um, uh, a guy called uh, uh, Ning Siyun and Corey uh, Yuan, um, who who direct it, um, wanted to make a, a Chinese response to the Karate Kid, and and actually one of the reasons why they wanted to make that response was partly because the Karate Kid had been so, so successful, and they didn't think that the martial arts action in it was was terribly impressive, but also the fact that they saw how successful it was, um, and uh, you know, but but the fact that they felt that it was actually ripping off. Um, a film that they had made some years earlier, a kind of Jackie Chan film called um, Snake in the Eagle's Shadow. So they felt that the Karate Kid had kind of lifted a lot of story elements um, from there. They were unimpressed with the the kind of the the, the martial arts action. As we know, Ralph Macchio not a mar- not a martial artist. Even that, even now, that's a that's apparent in the uh, Cobra Kai uh, reboot series. And so they thought, well, you know, we can do we can do better than that. And um, I think one of the, I think in terms of a lot of the stuff that we're going to be sort of like probably picking out and highlighting, I think we need to sort of remember that this is a, the this is the first English language film that um, uh, Ning Si Yun and Corey uh, Yuan had made. Uh, Corey Yuan, the director, didn't speak English, so he had to work with a translator um, throughout the entire film in order to communicate with like the cast and with like members of the members of the crew. The guy who wrote the script for this film, uh, Keith Strandberg, it was the first script that he ever wrote. Um, the only reason he kind of um, was doing this gig was because he was fluent in mandarin and new karate um and he says himself i you know i didn't know what i was doing in terms of of writing a script uh the casting director for this film again he knew martial arts but he himself admits i knew nothing about how to cast a cast a film so i think you have um within you know uh, i mean as i say i think this it's it's a miracle this film is as entertaining and works as well as it as well as it does but i think what you get here is you get a lot of people and i think the same is for the actors many of the actors here had never acted before um they knew martial arts but they never and many of them never acted afterwards um so you just basically have have um a lot of amateurs frankly involved in this film working with a director who doesn't doesn't speak the language that everyone else is speaking and so you can just see 
I, I think the impact of that in a lot of the the way that this film pans out, uh, you know, you were talking about the fact that, you know, Van Damme disappears out of the film until the end. I think, I think that's probably down to the fact that, as I say, Keith Strandberg never written a script before. So kind of, you know, doesn't, doesn't really know how to sort of marshal the material. The fact that there are so many dodgy actors in this film, well, the casting director didn't know what he was doing and the director didn't speak English. So how, 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 you know, how that's not the best recipe for making, uh, for making casting decisions. And uh, yeah, I think uh, you, I think, yeah, I thought just useful to kind of flag up some of those details because I think they filter. I think those issues filter throughout the uh, throughout the entire film and influence it quite heavily. Yeah, and it's actually you mentioned Strandberg. Um, I think in that 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 article that you, you you sent me, he says that his initial draft of the of the screenplay was like 180 to 200 pages long, which is <laughs> which you know somebody's like, no, you can't make a script that long. And so of course that makes me shudder. Miss me, the, the person who doesn't like a film over 88 minutes. Like the moment I saw those those words, 180 to 200 pages, uh, I there was a kind of a, a a shudder that went through me where I was just like, oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you, somebody, for telling him not to do that. But, but yeah, so that gives you a sense of what we were working with here. That you know that yeah, and 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 that probably also explains too why there there are some other uneven pieces in this film. That if he had a two hundred word or two hundred page script, um, and people were cutting things out of it, um, they were probably trying to keep things as well um, that they felt were necessary, and and they probably weren't as well developed. Yeah, definitely. And I think there's lots of evidence of that throughout this film. There's a whole relationship with a with a character called um, Kelly that, um, uh, you know, the, the character sort of main our main character, Jason, has where it's 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 blatantly clear um, sort of things that develop their relationship have just been chopped out of completely out of the film um, because, you know, sort of dialogue just doesn't make any make any sense so yeah they're clearly um whether they were whether they were filmed and then edited out or whether they were um you know just pages of the script that just got junked and nobody kind of um you know smoothed out um smoothed out the kind of the the, the rough spots that had then been created i don't i don't know but yeah there's there's lots of evidence of of, of kind of I don't know. Uh, yeah, this not being perhaps the the kind of a, a, a film where the kind of the the script had been uh, you know finely honed in advance of production starting. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and so yeah, we'll kind of we'll, we kind of see some of these interesting pieces here. Um, I mean, one of the things too I think about talking about you know Keith Strandberg as someone who was kind of new to to writing. Um, you know, we have the character of RJ, um, who is when um <laughs> when um when Jason moves in, you know, when his family moves into the to to quote unquote Seattle. Um, and as he's moving in, um, RJ, a kid from up the street, um, visits uh, Jason, and you know they get to know each other, become friends. And um, RJ stands for, I think it's um, something Jefferson. Um, I can't remember. It was like Reginald Jefferson, something like that. Um, yeah, he makes like a joke that. about it, doesn't he, in the film? But I can't remember what his proper name is. Yeah, and it, it was kind of a tradition that you know, if you have black characters in films that they would be named after presidents in like the, you know, like the seventies and eighties, for whatever reason, it just seemed like that was what they always did. So again, I think that's, you know, this, this Strandberg guy, like, Oh, okay. We've got our, our, our black character in the film. Let's name him Jefferson something or Roosevelt something, or, you know, um, is it like, the, you, you see those kinds of things, but, um, in talking to RJ, um, uh, Jason discovers that RJ knows where, um, Bruce Lee's, uh, uh tomb is where he's been buried because, um, Jason, being a martial artist, is a huge Bruce Lee fan, um, and so they go and visit the tomb. They do, and um, you know that sort of sets up kind of 
some stuff that that happens late later in the film with uh, who we discover is uh, who who, we, who turns who turns out to be uh, Jason's uh, sensei, the kind of Mister Miyagi figure for him in in this in this particular film. But yeah, I mean, and and I think here with this with this sort of tomb, uh, this scene at the graveside of, of Bruce Lee, we we uh, you know we we it's it's kind of we start getting evidence of of something that that crops up again and again in this film, which is the the tonality of it. I mean, it's all over the place so the these kind of opening scenes we've had this sort of dojo scene fight scenes a bit ridiculous we've then had that the family moved to seattle we're introduced to rj who is this uh, like absurd over the top <laughs> character um in 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 this in this film and then suddenly we're at bruce lee's graveside for for actually what's quite a quite a poignant and touching scene and yeah there doesn't seem to be there's no i the scenes don't marry together in any kind of tonal tonal way and and that sort of uh yeah undulating jackknifing type of a, approach to tone just uh yeah carries on carries on throughout the films you, you you are in these sort of early sort of 10 minutes you you are really sort of sitting back and going oh you know what what am I watching here? Because at, at, at first I thought this was goofy. Now now something this this is actually this they're actually trying to be quite sincere here. Right right yeah you don't really know what's happening and at the same time we've kind of introduced this this overweight fellow um, who I guess is a bully <laughs> of some sort and he's been <laughs> bullying R J he doesn't really know we don't really know what the issue is between him and R J um, and that's fine you know sometimes bullies have have issues you know and um. But, um, um, you know, we get a, a, a chase scene where um, the bully chases RJ and J RJ escapes. And then um, for some reason, um, our, this, this bully, this big guy, he's taking all his friends out to eat at this hamburger place. And um, this is the <laughs> second time we've established with this big guy that um, he doesn't know how to sort of navigate food going into his mouth. Uh, it just gets it, and it's not like somebody like you know because I think the idea of, of of a heavy person is that they're so voracious that they eat and mm -hmm. they don't really care that they're getting all over him. But it seems like in his case that like because earlier he's eating a chocolate cake and he's getting it all over his face. It seems like he just can't seem to get the food into his mouth properly. <laughs> Yes, and and in that way, it does make you wonder, like, how has he managed to become so overweight if he finds it so difficult to to consume food? So uh, you know, it's a, another mystery that the the film never fully resolves. Yes, and then for some reason, RJ is just wandering through the parking lot of this fast food place again. No, no real apparent reason for him being there, but he just sort of wanders through. And of course, this guy's like, "Hey, um, this is the guy that I've had problems with," and everybody's like, "Well, why do you have a problem with him?" Let's just say I do, I guess, is what he's saying. You know, they just kind of believe, they take his word for it, um, which is kind of an, also a theme through this, that people just take this guy's word for things, even though he seems like a, a shifty character. Um, so they go I, what, I was go just going to say, the, the, the aspect about that character that I find um, quite perplexing is the idea that he seems to be sort of leading, certainly in that burger uh, restaurant scene, he's leading this sort of gang of, of other sort of yous, but there's nothing about, um, you know, the character of Scott that lead, gives you the idea that that he would be, have the the, the charisma or the, you know, whatever, whatever in magic ingredient he needs to actually be in that position within that group. I mean, if anything, he looks like somebody who would be, um, be bullied himself and you know he would he'd be looking to to like to rj and and jason to kind of step in and help him out 
Yeah, I mean, I get like maybe because he bought them lunch. Um, <laughs> I guess maybe they they feel indebted to him for the hamburgers. But even then, it's like they aren't like you know, listen, we we don't want to get involved with this. And he's like, hey, I bought you guys lunch. You know, you could do me this one favor or something like that. No, no, they're just like all in on this whole bullying thing. And so they go to confront RJ. Right? I don't know if you know, and and, and a, a little bit of a tussle ensues, and then Jason shows up because for whatever reason, Jason also just happens to be wandering by this uh this fast food parking lot um and he confronts him he takes down scott he, he, he um he, he uh kind of beats him up and, and before that things can go much further the proprietor of the um hamburger place finally gets his act together and, and tells all the kids to get out of here um <laughs> and so then um the, the two of them are watching a, a um a, a, a karate tournament on tv um really nice uh, old uhf uh, tube TV where they're watching this uh, this karate tournament that's taking place in Reno and they see this this guy win the match um, and um, he's kind of a, a, a we, we kind of have him set up as a, as a big deal um, amongst everyone here his name is Ron his real name is Ron Ponell um, but the character is Ian Riley and so um, Jason decides to join his dojo unbeknownst to him that Scott the the overweight guy is also doing karate at this dojo and he lies to um the guy who's sort of uh, Dale, Dale Jacoby you know actor we've seen some PM entertainment films um he is the one running the dojo while Ian is out doing his um karate tournaments and um Scott tells uh Dale uh, or Dean that you know th this this cat here he he thinks LA is much better than Seattle LA um karate mm. dojos and they they end up kind of, you know, um, he has one of his best fighters in the dojo take down Scott, uh, Jason, and they have to escape quickly. But that's kind of the idea is that this Scott guy is also in really good with the dojo, um, which we, we weren't expecting. Uh, yes. And uh, I mean, that that makes no sense at all that, that Scott is a member of this dojo because in the in certainly in these these tussles that we've seen him be involved in earlier he hasn't shown anything you know that you would call martial arts prowess in in, the, in those particular moments and and again there's, there's another sort of puzzling moment here or that becomes puzzling later because it turns out that um that uh ian riley who works out of this who kind of you know is involved with this dojo his sister kelly is uh, a, a Sherman Oaks friend of Jason, but somehow Jason doesn't know that. You know, so you'd think that, oh, then Jason would know that, oh yeah, Kelly's brother's a martial artist and like is involved with that dojo, but because he of the previous relationship, but then that they that there's no he doesn't he doesn't seem to be aware of that at all. Also, certainly the person writing through the script doesn't. You know, Keith Strandberg doesn't seem to have kind of like necessarily joined all the dots that. He's, that he himself has uh, have, has put down on the page here. So yeah, it, it, that, this whole scene, uh, in retrospect, when you get to the end of the film, becomes very very puzzling and baffling. Right, right. Like we don't know. Yeah, right. They, these people should know each other because the next scene is a party um, where Kelly's birthday party is happening in a very nice place in, in the, the Sherman Oaks slash Seattle area, um, and um, uh, Jason goes to the party. He's got a gift for for Kelly. Um, and Dale is there. Dale Jacoby is there. I keep calling him Dale. His character name is Dean, but um, I just think of him. I'm trying to think. I know he did the Ring of Fire movies. I was trying to think of what else he's done with uh, with PM. But um, he did. He has a like like you said. Like most people in this film, he doesn't have a huge CV. But um, you know, he, he, people who haven't seen this film would probably recognize Dale Jacoby. Um, we find out that Dale has a thing for Kelly, and then. Jason shows up at the party and Kelly meets him and 
Um, he gives her his gift, which is a, a, a small bunny rabbit, which I think is kind of a, a, a big deal to be giving somebody that. But we find out that, no, Kelly wanted this bunny rabbit, that they would bet at the mall <laughs> in a scene that didn't. We never got to see, but they had bet at the mall together. And he went to, you know, one of those 80s, like, puppy mill um, pet stores that they would have in the mall and uh, picked out a bunny rabbit for her. And um, they kiss, and Dale Jacoby sees the kiss. He's not very happy about that. And then Dale and Scott decide to bully um uh, Jason at the party, um, uh, and also kicking him over a, uh, uh, a huge spread of like diet Pepsi and, and cakes <laughs> and things like that. And, um, you know, his, his shirt's all torn and all of these things. And he decides to leave in a huff. Um, so again, this, I don't know, this, this is just the discretion is the better part of valor here versus no retreat, no surrender. Um, but he's definitely retreating and surrendering. He realizes he's, he's been beat. Um, and Kelly meets him at the, at the car and says, you know, listen, I had nothing to do with this. I didn't set you up to do this. And, you know, Hey, I really still like you and all of that. Um, and, Instead of Jason being like, okay, I'm glad you still like me, he he gets he kind of shoves her away and drives off to uh, the tomb of of uh, Bruce Lee. <laughs> yeah, looking for looking for a bit more bit more guidance. I mean, I think the thing that um, uh, sort of by this point in the in the film, um, uh, you know, I was beginning to think that uh, that Scott, who's uh, played by Kent Lipman, uh, Kent Kent Lipham, uh, may well be the great one of the greatest characters in in film screen history. I mean, he's such he's such a ridiculous um, sort of caricature here. Uh, I mean, he he's he's such a sort of sniveling sort of snake in snake in the grass, and um, you know. And as we see in this scene here, he's a he's a he's a massive telltale tit. Um, and then in in the fight scene that ensues here, I love, even though um, you know Scott goes to this dojo, um, uh, the, your uh, Jacoby fellow is a is a kind of martial artist. Scott, they they hatch this plan where where you know um, uh, you know. Uh, 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 I've got a Jacoby character will or Jacoby fellow confronts uh, confronts Jason and uh, Scott's kind of snuck up on the ground behind him and is just kneeling down in all, uh, on all fours so that as uh, sort of Jason walks backwards he falls over him in that sort of you know classic sort of playground thing that you used to do when you were like seven or eight to your sort of mates in the school playground but you you just think well these are grown adults and and they're all meant to know martial arts why would they be why would they um, be doing like this sort of of a juvenile trick like this yeah it's almost like they felt like they needed to incorporate those karate kid bullying moments in and they just <laughs> didn't know how to do it like so i have a hunch that the movie that karate kid you know ripped off didn't have those kinds of moments in it and um i think they felt like well, we've got to have this party scene we've got to have you know these guys bullying um him mm. to give them the impetus to want to train to to be better uh, and they just didn't know how to do it because you're right it's like they're throwing cake at him um they're <laughs> spilling their drinks on him and it's it's and then of course like it escalates very quickly too because when when jason goes to fight back dale like is like kind of like with the, the upturned table that had been that he'd been knocked over into <laughs> then like dale has like his throat on like the the upturned legs of this, yes this folding table and he's like crushing his throat on this thing and it's like choking okay. him out Right, exactly. So it's like it, it escalates very quickly into something very serious. So, yeah, I think, you know, again, in context, like you said, of people who are kind of making a movie that they've never made before, they were trying to make a Karate Kid-like scene. And I think that's one area where I know, like you mentioned about how, um, you know, Ralph Macchio was not right, much of a martial artist, but he definitely played a victim as a bully really good in a movie. And um, I think <laughs> William Zabka was like the 
kind of the the pinnacle of 80s bully um and so like i think it would have been hard to make that work anyway but then with what with what we had involved it just yeah it didn't play out well yeah it's it's just goes back to that that point of thought just this sort of idea of th- th- just weird decisions being made like time and time again in in, in this in this film and but you know that's that's kind of the charm though yeah. yes yes now i think this is where the film kind of takes this is where our, our big plot point happens where kind of the thing that the film is most famous for other than being john claude van damme's introduction uh, jason goes to the tomb of bruce lee he begs for help he says sensei lee you have to help me which doesn't make any sense because bruce lee is dead so why would he have to do anything um and and of course i had it, my sixth grade teacher actually said the only thing you have to do in life is die so um that's the only thing bruce lee has done the only thing he has to do in life which is die but he, he really you know he, he should be under no obligation but the kid insists you have to help me um and then he goes home and his father who again is the discretion is the better part of valor guy in um in this film uh, uh freaks out seeing his son having you know the result of having been bullied his shirt is all torn he's got cake all over his shirt he's got bruises um and instead of being like hey son are you okay or hey you know uh, do we do we need to take you to a hospital do you need to you know do you need to be checked out do you have a concussion broken bones or any of those kinds of things you need stitches his first thought is you've been fighting again and i told you i don't want you fighting and this escalates very quickly into this huge fight where the dad goes into the the garage where he has his training set up and starts tearing things apart. Um, so, uh, you know, we in America here, we talk a lot about Gen X or, you know, Gen Xers and, and their, their boomer or, or um, uh, silent generation dads and how, um, you know, parents were not, you know, those dads were not the most sympathetic figures. Um, but this was kind of an extreme version of that that I see here. Yeah. I mean, it's his, the, the sort of the motivation doesn't really, makes sense for his his character this at this moment and with with this particular character you know jason's dad again uh, like uh, throughout the film you you think in the hands of a more experienced scriptwriter, some of these sort of bumpy moments would have been sort of like would have been ironed out better because um you know there there, there are some there, there's a kind of scene that we get with that we get to later where um uh, you know, uh, Jason's dad is working in a bar and he gets into some trouble with some of the customers and he has to get into a fight with them in the parking lot. And, and, and um, you know, uh, Jason ultimately ends, c- comes around and um, sort of helps him and uh, help basically takes over the fight and defeats the people for him. But I don't know, like in some ways for me, that scene should have been about like Jason's dad kind of getting his fighting mojo back. And it should have been about him fighting alongside his son and kind of rediscovering his his sort of like fighting mojo. But that's not how that that's not how that scene sort of, um, you know, plays out. And, you know, there's this other idea again, which sort of crops up later that um, in order for Jason to become the fighter that he needs to be, he needs to empty his mind of everything that he has been taught already about karate. Now, he, what he's been taught about karate is by his father, which is like, I mean, that, that's that's quite a big conflict there, potentially, of like, you know, you want me to abandon everything my dad taught me? Um, but the, the film doesn't, um, like, embrace or acknowledge that or, or do anything uh, anything with it. So there, there's, I think there's this, the whole sort of father-son angle within this film, you can kind of see what they're going for, but as I say, it feels very much like a, a sophomore draft of a, of, a, of a script here. Whereas, you know, you, you, you're kind of like, uh, you know, if you're at film school, you, your tutor would be going, okay, 
you know, would be getting the red pen out and going, look, kind of need to, you know, this this doesn't, these these plot points don't make sense. You kind of, you need to, if you're going to have an arc, it needs to be a bit more like, a bit more like this. And uh, yeah, I th- you know, I think th- this scene that you're talking about here, very much evidence of, yeah, some of these, uh, you know, arcs not really being properly thought throughout within this film. Yeah, and I think the film almost it almost takes like, almost like a, a a Hamlet turn to it, right? Where you know here is the it's almost like because what what happens is we'll, we'll kind of go into what exactly happens here. Um, uh, uh, Jason goes to his friend R.J. and R.J. of course, Mr. Man about Seattle slash Sherman Oaks. Um, he he knows everything about the town, and he happens to know of an abandoned house that um, uh, Jason can take all of his training supplies to and turn that into its training um, his training location, which um, you know. One thing that was really great, I thought, that was really convenient for them is that these two teenage, uh, you know, seniors in high school had access to tons of candles um, in the, in the <laughs> mid-80s. Um, and so they were able to light this place up with candles and get everything set. And then, um, you know, um, Jason falls asleep at this new training facility he's created out of an abandoned house. And who should show up but the ghost of Bruce Lee? Mm. Um, and the ghost of Bruce Lee has come to train him. This is where I think almost we almost get, get like a Hamlet kind of idea. Only there's, there's not a mother involved, right? It's more, I guess, like the, the, the martial arts is the mother, perhaps. I don't know. Um, but the idea right, is that like maybe that, that, that his real dad isn't really his dad, right? Like it's not – it's almost like a stepdad or, a, um, mm. you know, a, some kind of a false father figure the way that Hamlet's – um, uncle is like a false father figure, but here the real dad comes in ghost form to tell him, like, you know, right, like empty your mind, right? What your dad taught you is no good. You've got to, you know, do do this it, it, again. You know, I'm I'm maybe I'm stretching here probably quite a bit um, for this, but it was just sort of the, the certainly feeling. are with the Hamlet comparison, but you know, I think you know, you run with it, Matt. You run with it. <laughs> Well, just this idea that it's almost like his real father is the one who's showing him how to do martial arts. That, like, you know, that this is um, th- at least his martial art, his real martial arts father. That his dad might be his his dad, but here's the person training him. Um, but that's what we get. Um, we get a series of training montages where um, the ghost of Bruce Lee, um, for the most part, early on, he's smacking Jason upside the head mostly. Mm. Um, <laughs> But eventually, there's actual training that happens here, combined with a lot of uh, playground um, uh, working yes. out. Yeah. Um, yes. And I know. Uh, <laughs> you know, I was a big fan of the uh, the, the, the playground training montages, but uh, yeah, I mean the 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 I mean we do get some uh, like uh, the, I think the the training montages that take place in in the house or some of the tr- uh, in the the abandoned building, uh, some of those training montages, oh, some of the training moves looked at, to me quite dangerous because there, there was this one where he's got his leg like winched up very high kind of inside some sort of noose and then he's then having to sort of jump up and kick uh this uh, bag uh, with his other with his other foot and um you know he, he tries and fails and falls falls to the floor but he's is is one of his legs is is as i say is winched up uh and stuck inside this noose and i mean i'm surprised he didn't possibly you know i was looking at him wincing and thinking god he could really do yourself an injury if you uh kind of uh don't sort of land on your ass here in quite the right way um but the uh the the, the playground training montages are, are are absolutely fantastic and i think um 
you know, come back to, to something which we know that uh, this was a, a fairly sort of low budget production um, from from uh, from some of the stuff that uh, this, we've been reading about this this film. We know that a lot of the the, the the filming they did was on locations that were stolen. And you do get the sense of this was just like a, a playground nobody was using in the local area. And they just kind of right. Let's let's get as much of this. Let's, let's shoot as much stuff before anybody kicks us kicks us out of this uh, this children's playground. And uh, they're just making stuff up on the fly because there's very peculiar moves that are that, that are being done here in this training montage there's one where he's kind of he's got where jason's got his legs on a on a fence and then his his neck on a bench and then he's doing this sort of peculiar sort of like letting his his hips sink and then thrusting them uh, thrusting them back up i mean I, I don't quite know what what muscle group he's meant to be uh, working uh, there and uh, as a later montage, we then have RJ sitting on his lap whilst he does these these thrusting moves, which, uh, you know, if you, if you want to uh, put a homoerotic uh, read on on them, it's, you know, uh, you, you know you, you're not stretching too much to, <laughs> to, to, to put such a one on there. But, uh, yeah, there's all manner of peculiarities going on in, uh, in the uh, kind of playground training montage. Yeah, and, and actually, to your point about them possibly stealing footage from there, um, there is one of the scenes where he's doing these sort of like one-handed um, push-ups on mm. the uh, the picnic table where you can see kids swinging in the background. Um, and so, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I didn't even consider that because, you know, one of the thoughts I had, of course, is in our current, you know, um, pandemic environment, uh, the playground is actually the perfect place to get your workout because it's outdoors. Um, you know, the gym itself is very indoors. It's, you know, there's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, not a lot of air circulating in there, whereas, you know, a, a, a picnic table in a park is a perfect place to, to get a workout in. So, um I, I thought it was, it was, you know, worked there, but yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. And this is, there's a, a good amount of these training montages. There's between, between the, um, the, the, the playground and the house. And there's almost a sense, which I didn't realize that I, I, I didn't know he was actually going home at any point. Um, I was under the impression that he was living there in this place, but no, he actually, um, is going home and, 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 um, that's where we kind of discover that his the training has paid off. But I guess maybe we'll get to where um where, where mm. Bruce Lee finally leaves, right? And that's when he the the winched leg um <laughs> where he has to like kick a a, a bag above yes. his head while the other leg is winched in. He finally completes it, and um and the ghost of Bruce Lee just disappears. That's it. He's done. <laughs> his his work is uh, his work is complete. Yes, it's 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 a it's a strange having sort of introduced the ghost of of Bruce Lee. I mean, you know, an absolute icon of of, of cinema in, into your film. It's, it's it's strange to sort of have him bow out in 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 that uh, in that particular way. I mean, one thing um, one detail that I, I sort of picked up on, which I don't know if you were aware of, Matt, was that um, actually the guy who is playing the uh, the ghost of Bruce Lee actually uh, doubled for Bruce Lee in uh, Game of Death. Oh, um, I didn't know that. So, so he is kind of um, apparently he's Korean. Um, so this this then uh, apparently this also uh, compounded the the language issues on set because he didn't speak any English. Um, okay. Other people spoke uh, Mandarin, so they would have to then find somebody who presumably um, you know was then you know Corey Yuen would be speaking in Mandarin to somebody who could then uh, translate what he said into English, which could then be translated into <laughs> into Korean for uh, for the, the poor old actor playing uh, Bruce Lee. So I mean, just you can as I say. So it's a miracle this film came together um, as well as it did. Yes, and one of the interesting takes that the the riff tracks guys had on on this was that they made it sound like no that like 
he was just like some bum, like grifter, who was pretending <laughs> to be Bruce Lee and, and, and conning this kid into like, you know, getting free food and, and, and smacking him upside the head periodically, um, uh, which would have been an interesting end to it if we found out that actually it wasn't Bruce Lee at all. It was just this guy, you know, but <laughs> but um, but no, I, I think, you know, it, it, it it's an interesting it's one of those things that, like, yeah, it's um, it, it it kind of adds to the charm of this film that they went with this technique. That, like, I think in their mind they felt like they needed to do it because they wanted to have a real master um, training mm. the kid. So that's why they did it. But um, it, it's definitely a kind of a, a, a it, it's a fascinating idea that the ghost of Bruce Lee is going to train a kid, and that they actually had an actor playing him. Because I was thinking maybe they would just show him from the back and never yes. show his face, and we just think that it's going to be Bruce Lee. Yeah, I, I did. I did think about okay, because I mean, I know this guy, like, apparently did some doubling for 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 Bruce Lee in, in Game of Death. Obviously, that's a, a film that was you know never completed. So they were you know they were just cobbling cobbling that together from what what had been shot. Um, and the you know I was kind of thinking, you know, would it do you? I mean, because it's you're you're obviously going to be looking at that that person who is playing the ghost of Bruce Lee and comparing him to Bruce Lee. I mean, for me, he didn't really look a lot like Bruce Lee. I, I mean, you could see some of the the way that he the the way that he spoke and the and some of his sort of movements and gestures definitely um, were were kind of like influenced by Bruce Lee. He was, I, feels like he's sort of bringing that elements into his performance um but it kind of you know like does it actually by showing having an actor um do that role are you is that really the best way to go and as you say is it would it be better to just have i don't know like some uh, a mysterious shadow against a, a powerful light and somebody just doing a vocal performance in in those moments would that would that work better i mean uh I'm kind it's 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 sort of hard to it's kind of hard to know I think um and I, and I think these scenes again just sort of picking up on something we've mentioned a few times already uh you know there's clearly a lot of respect as there should be for for, for um you know Bruce Lee and these scenes are, are sort of treated um you know very very seriously but you know as as we've discussed before like some of these other other scenes are just so wacky um that you you, you just you know just like you just going from you know go from this sort of training montage in the playground like the handbrake goes on and now now we've got you know the uh, ghost of bruce lee like delivering a very serious sermon on the kind of the nature of, of martial arts to, to jason and you're just like oh well hold on i was i was really in i was really into the goofy bits and <laughs> now now we're now we're being all serious Exactly. Yeah, it's just it's, it, it is. It's, it's, it's I, I think you're right that there's this sort of this alchemy going on here with the, the, the because of, of, you know, who is involved with making this, that it it it, it is. It's, it's a bit of a roller coaster at points. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's almost like as we get stuck into this um, this montage thing, um, we're kind of like, OK, Bruce Lee's gone. Uh, we're, 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 we're kind of, okay, now where are we going to go from here? And that is when the baddies from the, the Sherman Oaks, uh, dojo scene, they finally make their way to Seattle. They're, they're ready to expand their operation into Seattle. And <laughs> of all the dojos to pick that they're going to get, it's this famous karate master, Ian Riley's dojo. And so we find out, of course, during the party that, um, that he, uh, tells them that we're going to take over your dojo you don't have any choice we're, we're going to use this we're going to take it or whatever and so ian riley offers a compromise which is interesting right because i don't understand mm -hmm. you know if these guys can just take these things by force why do they need to compromise but he says all right you know why don't we have a, a karate off 
um, in in our at this gym here, and whoever wins the karate off gets my dojo. Um, and the baddies think this is a fantastic idea, which doesn't make any sense at all. They're they're putting flyers up, they're getting TV advertisements, they're getting it posted on the news that everybody, hey, come to this dojo and check out this thing. I feel like, again, from a crime syndicate standpoint, the last thing I want is. You know, because I mean, I can just imagine. I'm sure at this point there's wiretaps. Um, if this is a major crime family in New York, um, that you know, uh, the FBI is onto them at this point, and and they're seeing this and they're probably thinking, this is fantastic. Like we've got tons of like you know, like like evidence that we you know, I, I the, the movie probably should have ended with a huge FBI raid, but that's you know neither here nor there. The the, the fight is being publicized, and um, so this is kind of where we kind of get into our our end scene. But before that, we do have a quick um sort of. As you mentioned, we have a reconciliation between uh, Jason and his father because Jason's father is accosted by um, some bar toughs outside the bar he's working at. And Jason actually has to go in and rescue him. Um, they aren't, like you said, they aren't kind of fighting together and, and the dad getting his mojo back. No, Jason just just wins for him. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's it's a bit of a it's, – it's an anticlimax. And you, 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 you're sort of left wondering sort of what exactly is, is – are we meant to conclude from from that from that particular scene? But uh, you know, as you as you mentioned, we're, we're soon into this absurd um, tournament um, where. <laughs> well, I mean, why 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 on earth would any crime syndicate agree to uh, agree to this you know bizarre compromise deal where you know they'll, they'll just uh, you know they'll just shoot you in the head and like uh, you know take the keys from your pocket and like yeah we now run this dojo. I mean they're not they're not going to mess around with uh, with with a with a with a tournament like that. But you know I think we're we're you know the we're, we're through the looking glass by that point in the in the film. <laughs> Yes, and, and so where the reconciliation is important is because Jason is attending this tournament with his dad and RJ. So, so the other dad is there for this, and so who? Um, so, so the, the 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 tournament is set up where the, the these guys from New York, the crime guys, they have their three best fighters, and then of course we have the three guys from the gym. So we have the the karate champion Ian Riley, we've got Dale Jacoby, and then we have the guy who um, represented the the dojo and beating up Jason initially. Um, who is, uh, I guess he's like the West Coast karate champion or something. I don't know what, what his, his deal was. Um, but these three are going to take on the New York's three best until we get a plot twist. Um, and the baddies let us know that, no, actually, our three guys are going to bow out and we're just going to bring in Jean-Claude Van Damme and he's going to take all three of your guys. Um, which I was hoping it was going to be like him fighting all three at once, but that's not how it works. Um, he's he's fighting those three. And so the moment Jason sees that it's Van Damme, he, he warns them. He says, like, listen, guys, you, you don't really want to deal with him. He's 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 the real deal. And of course, why would they listen to him? You know, they they don't care what he thinks. And he's like, OK, well, good luck, you know. Um, and of course, you know, Van Damme dispatches of the first two immediately. And then the third fight happens with the, the karate champion, Ian Riley, and it, it devolves into this huge like. And the best way I could describe it was, um, you know, <laughs> if Popeye and Bluto were having a boxing match in a cartoon, right, Bluto would be doing all these things like tying him into the ropes and pounding him and, and all this kind of crazy stuff. Um, and it devolves into that where Joe Van Damme has like tied the guy. He's like choking him with um, a cord from around the turnbuckle. He's 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 tying him within the, the ropes and, and, mm. and pounding him that way. Um and this is where your article comes in to explain what is happening here. Um, that, um, in fact, um, the, the the star or the, the 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 karate champion played by Ron um, Polar is it or Ponell? Ron Ponell. Yeah, Ponell. Yeah, he says eleventh um, hour that he doesn't want to lose a fight. 
he's not interested in losing to Van Dam. Um, and which I, I have to assume is an issue, with, excuse me, an issue with these movies that um, these competitive uh, martial artists don't want to be the one to lose a fight. I know that was a big thing, I think, in um, uh, what was it? It was a movie um, that Chuck Norris did with um, uh, David Carradine, where Carradine didn't want to lose to, to mm. him. Um, you know, Steven Seagal never wants to lose in his movies. Oh, probably that must be Lone Wolf. That must be Lone Wolf, Lone Wolf McQuaid. McQuaid. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it's a kind of a common thing, but you know, of course, they're stuck. And it, what's interesting is in the in the in the, the the way that they wrote it is they're like, oh well, they he knew he had us over a barrel because we had developed him to such a point that he had to do this. That's not really true at all, right? Um, no, they, yeah. He, I mean, he wasn't that developed, and he easily could have twisted an ankle or something. And Jason comes in and, and wins the fight. Um, they mm. didn't need to to kind of. They didn't need to bow to his pressure if they didn't want to. Um, they, they, the, the fact that they thought that, that he had them over a barrel was really interesting in reading that. So, so just to kind of give everybody an idea, when this guy comes in and says, "Listen, I'm not losing this fight," they say, "Oh, well, we've we've already filmed so many scenes with him. We can't possibly, you know, he he's got us stuck here. So we've got to figure something out." And that's when they they come up with this idea that Van Dam cheats, and that's how he beats the guy. Yeah, and uh, you know, and I think. I think it kind of, you know, I don't think when you're watching the film, you don't really notice that, you know, just it just that seems like like, oh, maybe that was always maybe that was always in the script. I mean, who knows? It doesn't really make an ultimate difference to to the film or or to any any characters, particular arc or or, or anything or anything like that. But um, I mean, this this part of the film, it's it's kind of where you get the most. Uh, fight action and the kind of like the most sustained um, fight action and I mean I don't know I don't know what you thought about the kind of the martial arts uh, the, the the fight scenes that we that we get in this in this film I mean I I didn't think they per- personally I didn't think they were that great I mean I don't, I, I'm certainly not saying that they were bad but um, I I didn't think that they were terribly terribly special and um, I think one of the, one of the things that uh sort of in the sort of research that I was sort of reading about was that uh, a lot of the as as we as you mentioned a lot of the the actors in here were like first time actors and they were picked because they knew martial arts but because they'd never acted and done martial arts before films before they didn't know like screen fighting so they didn't know how to like throw kicks and throw punches in a way that look real on a camera but don't actually you know take somebody's take somebody's head off so you then have like uh Corey Yuen sort of trying to then explain to these guys obviously he doesn't speak English he's then trying to explain to these guys like how you how you do screen fighting um and so I I wonder if the if some of the the sort of choreography and some of the fight scenes are a bit compromised by the fact that um, you've got all these very inexperienced um, actors, um, you know, and a guy doesn't doesn't speak English, and that that then is influencing it because obviously, you know, I mean, Corey Yuen's, uh, you know, probably, you know, is is probably bows to no man in terms of like the action that he's put on screen um, over the years. But I, I, I looking at this, I, and it's certainly, I would say, far from his finest hour. But uh, yeah, I don't I don't know what your don't know what your take on that sort of side of things is, Matt. Yeah, it feels almost like um, because these guys didn't necessarily know a lot of what they were doing, it felt like they were doing a lot of like dodging, right? It was a lot of like, you know, dodging kicks. Whereas I think, mm. you know, the martial artists who were used to working in films, 
they know because yeah I, I would imagine if you're fighting in a karate you know if you're actually in a one-on-one -on -one battle with someone in karate blocking is probably not something that's a, a huge deal right you're you want to be on the offense and you want to get someone right away probably whereas in a, in a film it's a lot of blocking right it's a lot of like people throwing kicks and people and, and it's a lot of timing with that too as well and um yeah i imagine if they're not good at that piece of it you know, with with fights being choreographed, that, that yeah, it, it's you know that there it's it's hard to kind of figure out what to do there. Um, yeah, a lot of it was edited too. A lot of it was like you know, um, you know, showing a kick here or there, like and then mm. hitting somebody. It was, yeah, and and they said that that was where they did the most filming was in these scenes. And so I think part of that was probably UN wanting to get it right and just having trouble with it. Yeah, I mean it's it's uh, I mean it's 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 a good. You know, it's a it's a good it provides a good climax to the film, and I'm mean, I'm not I don't, I don't want anyone coming away thinking that uh, that you know sort of sort of a, a terrible terrible sequence in the film, but um, yeah, it just just for me, I I I wasn't too. Uh, wasn't too impressed by the, the kind of the, the martial arts actions um, that we get uh, in the film, but you know, as a as a kind of climax to the movie, it's 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 very satisfying and kind of you know sort of provide you know makes the film end on just the sort of just sort of notes that you want. I think at, the, at this particular moment. Yeah, and I think one of the things too that, that was interesting about the Van Damme cheating part when he's fighting um, uh, Ian Riley, the the karate champion. To this point, I don't know how you felt when Van Damme was fighting the guys from that other dojo, but I didn't like those guys, and I was kind of happy to see Van Damme <laughs> taking them out, um, which was, again, probably, you know, again, a hole in the script that they didn't write it properly, that they have two sets of baddies, in a sense, and when you're seeing these two baddies square off, you know, Van Damme was the cooler of the group, so, yeah, mm -hmm. um, um, there's also probably a sense, too, for Jail Jacoby that, uh, J uh, Dale Jacoby that later on he must be thinking like oh i got to fight van damme you know and there's a couple of there's a couple of um th things we should uh, uh sort of mention i think which is that uh obviously uh, you know this is van damme's kind of uh, first real proper screen role and uh, uh, in this climactic fight he does do uh, one of his trademark splits yeah. across the uh, across the ropes uh, in the ring so uh, you know we get to see uh, one of his uh, actor trademarks you know in his uh, breakout breakout role which uh, you know a, a move obviously we will see and enjoy uh, many many more times in the in the years ahead Yes, yeah, exactly. That's a good point. It was it's almost like I got of like a, uh, a, a announcing uh, himself to the world, wasn't he, with the, with, yes. the, with those? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there really is. You know, one of the things I think they talk about here, and uh, maybe what I'll do, I'll kind of wrap us up. But what, what essentially happens is, is that um, in in sort of cheating, um, Jason jumps in and says, you know, kind of just tries to jump in to save Ian while he's being beaten. Um, by Van Damme, who's cheating, and then of course they have the fight, and and Jason prevails, and everybody goes away happy. Um, you know, everybody's lifting Jason up in the air, and um, all that stuff happens is really great. Um, but um, you know, one of the things I think that that article that you sent mentioned was that there's sort of a sense that that Van Damme has a bit of ego, and I kind of feel like if I'm Van Damme and I watch this movie beginning to end, that I feel like I was the star of this movie. That like I, mm. you know, I can kind of get where the ego comes from here. That like if I was him watching this, I'd be like man, I was kind of head and shoulders better than everybody in here. Um, because it, it kind of feels like that. And maybe it's just because I'm, I know who Van Damme is after. And I just, he's the, the, the face and everything that I key in on. But there was almost a sense that he was the one who really had the it factor in this film. Uh, I, I, I agree 
And I disagree with that because I, I definitely think you are projecting onto this film and that performance the fact that we know what happens, you know, within a few years he's making, you know, blood sport and kickboxer and you know, then we're into Universal Soldier. So I, I think there's definitely an element of like projecting what we know about Van Damme's kind of future onto onto this onto this performance. But by the same token, I do think that he I do think that he kind of like pops out of the screen in a way which the other actors don't do um, and the other performers don't do. So, you know, in terms of the martial arts that he puts out there on the screens, I think, you know, he definitely looks like the, the strongest performer there. And I think even at this stage, like in terms of the performance that he's delivering, I mean, it's it's not... Uh, it's not Shakespearean. It's not Hamlet acting that he's he's putting he's putting out here. But he's he's definitely got um, a screen presence and a charisma that that does pop out of the screen. So you 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 can you can see that sort of star quality within the little, frankly, that we get of of Van Damme within this film. Yeah. I, well, I guess this is we've kind of hit, hit the end here on this. Uh, any, any final thoughts on No Retreat, No Surrender? Um, I think we 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 did. Uh, one thing we haven't mentioned is the uh, bizarre breakdancing section of this film, <laughs> where we get to go to a nightclub with uh, with RJ. Um, everybody there seems to be sort of dressed up in uh, outfits inspired by Michael Jackson, and um, we get uh, a breakdancing scene, which I've I've no idea what relevance that had to the plot or how it advanced the story. Um, which I just thought, you know, it just there it just was a real um, sort of nod to the pop culture of the time. And I think that's something overall, which I think you can say about No Retreat, No Surrender, which is this is a film very much of its time, the style, the fashion, the look, the tone. It's an absolute time capsule of that of that year. You couldn't make it the year before. You probably couldn't make it the year afterwards. It is it is that year in a in a nutshell. Yeah, it, it actually, you make a great point too about the, the, the breakdancing thing because RJ seems to be very popular at this club. And the whole film kind of sets up that RJ doesn't really have a lot of friends, that he's just, you know, he's befriended Jason, that he's being picked on by this gang of like more popular kids. He doesn't get invited to Kelly's party. Um, yet here he has this, this environment where he's like the most popular person there. And it's weird that they weren't leaning on that more. Like instead of like worrying about these bullies, like mm. why not just be, you know, in this friend group here where you're the most popular. And Kelly was at this club and she seemed to enjoy being there. So um, yeah, that was, it was interesting. But like you said, yes, um, it was very much, um, it was, it, it, uh, it, they, 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 they kind of pulled that directly from films like Breakin', um, which was, was really great to see. Definitely. Excellent. Well, well, as we're wrapping up here, um, Will, did you want to do some plugs of, of some of your things? Oh, you're too kind, Matt. You're too kind. But uh, uh, yes, so I run uh, Exploding Helicopter, which is a website and podcast dedicated to celebrating uh, films where uh, helicopters explode. It's our favourite uh, on-screen fiery film trope. So uh, yeah, if you want to uh, come and uh, find out about the uh, strange way helicopters keep exploding in films, then you can uh, find our website at explodinghelicopter.com or you can check out our podcast, uh, which you can find on sort of uh, pretty much every every podcatcher that is is out there um at the time of this recording our most uh, recent episode is is looking at a, a very strange uh, romantic dance musical called dancing is on and uh, uh matt uh, himself is uh, is my guest on that particular show as uh, we we discuss that very strange movie but uh yeah uh, come follow us on twitter facebook um 
we're on all the sort of social media so yeah come and uh come and come and check us out come say hello Yes, yeah, for sure. And I, I definitely your, your your Twitter in particular for people. I mean, the podcast is fantastic and, and, and the site is fantastic. Um, but also people that uh, should, should be following your Twitter because um, you, you kind of post uh, uh, GIFs and, and videos of, of, of great exploding helicopters and movies um, and uh, some really fantastic ones that are it's just it's always kind of a, a nice a fun thing to kind of as you're going through your timeline to see a great uh, exploding helicopter in a movie. Well, if you've got time to kill in your life, um, you know, our Twitter feed's a great way to waste it. So, yeah, come and come and follow us uh, on Twitter at Chopper Fireball. All right. Excellent. Well, well, thank you again, Will, for coming on. This is I think this is out of the, the three times you've been on the show. This is the first time you've been on in a film that didn't have an exploding helicopter in it. So uh, we kind of went a little bit off the 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 the, the usual fare um, in, in your oh, case. It's <laughs> good to good to good to stretch my uh, filmic muscles. <laughs> yes, we might. Well, I mean, who knows? Maybe there's a, a, another possibility for um, uh, uh, playground montage training scene movie because that does also seem to be a bit of an 80s thing that happened quite a bit <laughs> that uh, there are a lot of movies where people were training in in uh in public parks right exactly yes for sure <laughs> all right excellent well well thank you again will for coming on thank you everybody for listening this is the uh direct-to-video connoisseur podcast and we'll, we'll be back soon um hopefully in the near future <laughs> all right thanks everyone sound of a patient whose health data is protected from a cyber attack. And that, that's the sound of a financial system that's digitally secured from bad actors. Right now, there's an invisible war being fought on a digital battlefield that impacts what we do every day. That's why at Paraton, we do the can't be done to help protect the vital systems we rely on. Because if we don't, the alternative is unimaginable. Paraton.